This is Our American Stories. And for the hour, we're going to bring you Arnold Palmer's funeral. If you lived around Latrobe, Pennsylvania, or Pittsburgh, quite a number of the local news teams cut in. And we joined that feed because we knew there'd be great stuff. And boy, was there. And by the way, if you do have a chance, go to your newsstand and pick up the Sports Illustrated, the special edition for Arnold Palmer, and read Michael Baumberger's piece, A King Among Us. It's so beautifully written. Chichi Rodriguez, the legend, said, Every touring pro pro should bow down and pray to Arnold Palmer for what he did for golf. He wasn't precious. He wasn't privileged. One reporter called him Marlon Brando with a golf club. He created an army of fans known as Arnie's Army, and as you'll learn, there was a reason. He was loved, and you're going to hear that in this funeral. Let's start where it began with Archbishop Douglas Nowitzki, who began his reading of Psalm 23, Arnold Palmer's favorite verse. I would like to begin our memorial service with a reading of Psalm 23. This psalm of trust in God and human courage was meaningful to Arnie throughout his life. You, Lord, are my shepherd. I will never be in need. You let me rest in fields of green grass. You lead me to streams of peaceful water, and you refresh my life. You are true to your name and you lead me along the right paths. I may walk through valleys as dark as death, but I won't be afraid. You are with me, and your shepherd's rod makes me feel safe. You treat me to a feast while my enemies watch. You honor me as your guest, and you fill my cup until it overflows. Your kindness and love will always be with me each day of my life. And I will live forever in your house, O Lord. And then came friends, fellow golfers, family members. And the first up, former LPGA commissioner and friend, Charlie Meacham, who set up the stories he's about to tell about Arnold Palmer. After uh, I retired from the LPGA, Arnold invited me to become a consultant and advisor to him and move into his office at Bay Hill. I was honored to do this, and we, for the next 10 years, shared desks about eight feet apart with an open door in between. So naturally, we had a lot of conversations. So what I want to do today as my part in the program is simply to share a few just simple stories that I hope and think might give us a smile. And to get a feel for the man, here is Meacham talking about he and his friend would talk about each other's hair or lack thereof. As we both grew older, my hair would get a little longer and his a little thinner. And he would say to me, Charlie, you need a haircut. And my answer was, Arnold, 
That comment is coming from the deep envy and jealousy that you feel for my hair. And by the way, have you ever considered a toupee? <laughs> he reached for a three iron and I moved out quickly. And it got at the playfulness of this man. Meacham shares one of his favorite memories about Palmer. One of my favorite stories, many of you have probably heard this, is the friend that told Arnold that his mother had been in a nursing home. Her memory was fading a bit. And uh, one of his friends went to see her. She had been a great fan of Arnold's and had his picture on the wall surrounded by all of her family. Well, he had a nice visit with her and he said as he was leaving, Mrs. Jones, uh, it must be real comfort to you to, to have the, uh, those, all those photos. And uh, she said, oh, it's wonderful. She said, you know, I don't know who all those people are, but that's Arnold Palmer. And here Meacham shares what he says is his favorite story about his best friend. This may be my favorite story. One day during the Masters telecast, we were having lunch. Arnie, of course, as you know, had won it four times, and I was curious to get his impressions of, uh, of the course and the, and the event. And as you know, holes 13 and 15 always present a very interesting challenge. They are both par fives, have water hazards just in front, creek on 13, a lake on 15. More than once, players have laid up on these holes, being unwilling to risk going into the hazard and becoming toast. Well, I asked Arnold, have you ever considered laying up on 13 or 15? He sat for a minute, and then he said, uh, you know how many times I've come in second at Augusta? And I thought, well, that's not, not, no, not really an answer, but I said, uh, uh, no, I don't. He said, neither do I. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> Neither do I. And to me, that sort of said it all. Winning wasn't his only goal, but coming in second certainly didn't rank very high. Arnold Palmer was going to not ever lay up and lay back. I think that's why everyone loved him. He just, he ripped, he let it rip. He went for it. Was he the greatest golfer? Who cares? Was he the most important? You bet. And you're going to learn why as you listen to more and more folks talk about this man. Arnold Palmer's funeral and memorial service at St. Vincent Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. We're going to take you back there after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, for Arnold Palmer. By the way, that's very, very infamous location for football fans because it's where the Pittsburgh Steelers train. And Arnold Palmer's relationship, as you're going to learn as you continue to listen with family, friends, and all of the people who loved him in the sport, well, there's a big reason for it. And it ends up that, as we learned about Arnold Palmer, he didn't just play the sport brilliantly. He democratized the sport, a sport that had been before him only for the elites. And he didn't just democratize it, he commercialized it. He was the first golf pro to win a million dollars on the professional tour. He was the first to fly his own plane to a tournament. He ended his career with 68 PGA wins, seven majors, and four masters. Four. The first to ever do such a thing. So let's go back to that memorial service. And now we hear from his grandson, a golf pro himself, Sam Saunders. We are all here for the same reason. We loved Arnold Palmer. We all loved my grandfather. I had the unique opportunity to be able to call him a grandfather. My family here today had the pleasure to know him as not just the celebrity, the professional golfer, the aviation superstar. Um, We knew him as Dumpy. That was his name. We referred him as, with as much love as we could. Uh, the name Dumpy came from my oldest sister, Emily, in an attempt to call him Grumpy as a little girl. Her GRs were Ds. And um, to this day, I have Dumpy in my phone. Dumpy. Saunders talks about knowing his grandfather as a real person. You all are used to seeing him in his stiff collared shirts with the umbrella pin, wearing it with a style that only he could. We had the unique opportunity to see him in cut-off sweatpants and a t-shirt sometimes. And we loved that man as much as you loved the man that you saw on TV. There wasn't a big difference between the man you saw on TV and the man that we knew at home. Saunders then went on to talk about how Arnold Palmer, his grandfather, was always there for him. I want to tell you a couple of stories from me personally of why he meant so much to me. I could talk about my golf career and and how he helped me get started in that and and all of the great advice he's given me, but what, what he did so well with me is he was always there. He was there for me, but he was there for our entire family. He would always take my phone call, always. In fact, I called him one day and he would always answer the phone, and in his voice, where are you? That was, that was how he answered the phone every time. And I was always at a tournament somewhere. I said, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm here. Or he'd say, why aren't you playing? And I said, I am playing. I'm in Boise, playing in the web.com event, or I'm, you know, wherever. And this one particular time, he said, where are you? I said, I'm at home. And I said, where are you? He said, I'm with the president. So I, I, I said, 
What do you the president of what? <laughs> and he said to me as if it was so obvious, the United States. He said, I'm in the Oval Office right now with the president. And I said, well, why are you answering your phone? He said, I wanted to talk to you. And that's what he did. He always wanted to talk to me. He always wanted to be there for us. And he always, always was. That'll make you feel pretty important. Having a granddad who cuts off the president of the United States to take a random call from a grandson. Something I think we can all learn from, by the way. Saunders then describes his next and final phone call with Grandpa. The next phone call I want to tell you about is a little bit tougher. It's the last phone call that I ever made to him. I will be grateful for the rest of my life that I called him at 4.10 on the Sunday that he passed away. I called him. He answered the phone on the first ring in the hospital preparing for surgery the next morning. He asked me where I was. <laughs> where are you? I said, I'm at home. I said, I'm thinking about you today. We all are. And he told me to take care of my babies, take care of my children, take care of my family my entire family. And I intend to do that and make him proud. And then I told him I loved him. He told me he loved me back. And that was the last thing we said to each other, and I will cherish that for the rest of my life. And possibly as good as it got, you would think, but no, just more and more folks continue to share their memories. And before we continue, I wanted to share just a few things from this Sports Illustrated piece by Michael Bamberger. And he writes this, and I, I found this, well, this was something we didn't come across anywhere else when we were doing our research. Root around the soul of any professional golfer, and you'll find something melancholic. Fans remember Palmer tossing victory balls and flinging visors like they were Frisbees. Those photos were lodged in Palmer's mind, too, but he remembered just as well the ones that got away. He revisited these events without bitterness, but with genuine regret. Hearing him talk about these tournaments made him all the more real. He had a way of creating intimacy. Friends, relatives, and employees were intensely loyal to him. Unlike almost every other great champion, Palmer found joy in the game even after Age started eroding his skills. He liked being in public. He liked being with the boys. And he liked the challenge of trying to improve. He loved golf at every stage. One day when he was in his 70s, Palmer was playing a par-3 course in the California desert. Early on, he found himself one down to a duffer, a local guy. But then he started to turn the match around. He shook his club and yelled joyfully, I got you now. And in the end, that's Arnold Palmer. He just loved to compete and he loved to play. And a lot of guys, once they lose being the best at something, they just quit. And you feel sorry for those guys because it meant they didn't love the sport. They loved the conquest. 
And it tells you a lot about this man. And one man who knew him well was Russ Meyer. You heard a little bit about Arnold Palmer's love of aviation. In the same Sports Illustrated story, they said, look, the thing that was really distinctive about Arnold was that he lived like everyone else except for the private planes because he loved to fly. Here's Russ Meyer, Chairman Emeritus of Cessna, talking about Arnold Palmer's love of flying. He didn't just like to fly. He loved to fly. And the faster the speed and the higher the altitude, the better he liked it. Shortly after he earned his private pilot's license, back in the late 50s, he put his golf clubs in the back seat of a Cessna 172, flew solo to Akron to play an exhibition, and was back home for dinner. That was it for Arnie. It was not only fun, but he recognized that flying his own aircraft would enable him to pursue both his golf and business careers and still live in Latrobe back in the days when there was no airline service. Arnie was not just a pilot, he was an outstanding pilot. In aviation, we describe the really special pilots as having good hands. And I can assure you that Arnie's hands were just as comfortable on the controls of an aircraft as the grip of a golf club. He logged almost 20,000 hours and he flew just about everything, the 747, high-performance military jets, acrobatic aircraft, helicopters. If it had wings and an engine, Arnie would give it a try. He even flew with the Blue Angels and the Thunderbirds. Long before they constructed that beautiful new runway at Arnold Palmer Airport, he operated his business jets in and out of a narrow 4,000-foot strip that had no control tower, minimal snow removal, no precision landing system, and a pretty good-sized tree on the final approach to runway 21. And that's Russ Meyer again, Chairman Emeritus of Cessna, Arnold Palmer's Memorial Service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. We're going to bring you more after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with Arnold Palmer's memorial service at St. Vincent College at his home in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. An airport's named after him there, and as we learn, Arnold Palmer loved to fly. And in that great Sports Illustrated piece, as I had said earlier, it was said over and over again that Arnold liked to live like an ordinary guy. He didn't have these mansions, and he ate what normal folks eat. That one exception was his love of aviation. And by the way, we're going to hear more from Russ Meyer, again, the chairman emeritus of Cessna. And by the way, Russ knows a bit about flying himself, not just from his executive experience. He was a former Marine fighter pilot. And here is Meyer going on to describe Palmer as the best friend he ever had. 
I'd like to close this morning with some personal comments about the best friend I ever had. For a guy who was so confident and so successful, it was interesting to me that Arnie occasionally needed a little reassurance. After an important speech or a business meeting, he would sometimes ask me, did I do okay? And invariably, I'd pat him on the shoulder and I'd say, you did okay. If Arnie were here this morning, as we celebrate his life, and if he asked me, did I do okay? I'd say, think about this. You raised a wonderful family that mirrors the strength of your character and the quality of your values. You have enriched and inspired the lives of millions of people all over the world, not just by how you played, but who you are. And your exceptional generosity to so many charities, especially for health care for babies and children, will have a positive impact and bring joy to thousands of families for generations. That legacy, in my view, is even more important than all those majors. So I'd have to say, my good pal, you did okay. Thank you. And then up next came possibly the best sports broadcaster in history. And another friend. And Palmer had a talent for making friends. And this guy is Jim Nance. CBS Sports broadcaster talking about how blessed everyone was to have Palmer in their lives for so many years. Arnie's last tournament win on the PGA Tour was a 1973 Bob Hope Desert Classic. He was 43 and a half years old. He passed away last week, 43 and a half years after having won that tournament. It's almost eerie if you looked it up, how the days almost match up in perfect symmetry. So the first nine of his life, you know, was spent right here in Latrobe, loving parents, big dreams, a father's dream passed on to a son, wants him to one day go down, compete at Augusta. People say, well, he won it four times. People forget, though, he was the first to ever win it four times. It was a huge achievement at the time, the first to ever win it four times. And all the other many things he did through those first 43 and a half years. But you know, the second nine, he was still competing. He was playing in the skins game competitions and playing some senior golf. But that second nine was every bit as rewarding and fulfilling and relevant. You know, he was building golf courses all over the world. He was building hospitals. He was the captain of the philanthropic efforts of our sport. You know, unlike other sports, you never really retire in our game. You're still around. Weren't we blessed and lucky and fortunate to have Arnie for all these years? 
Nance goes on to talk about Palmer's performance at his last Masters tournament and what an enormous heart he really had. His last Masters round in competition was a sad day. We were never ready for that. It took him a long time just to get up to the first tee. He got on the putting green just in time to, in theory, hit a couple of putts. He had shaken so many hands on the way to the practice putting green. I happened to be standing there, and as soon as we locked eyes, he said, uh, have you made your decision? I was at a point making some significant career decisions at a crossroads where they're going to go over and maybe do news in the morning. And I told him, I have. I'm staying with sports. This is my dream was to grow up one day broadcast the Masters Tournament. There's no way I'm ever going to walk away from that. He said it was a tough decision. I said it was. See, at that time, my father was deep in the throes of Alzheimer's, a battle that he would lose soon after. And Arnie was aware of all that. And I told him it was the first time in my life I could never seek my father's counsel. He was incapable of being able to help me through a very important decision. And here he was, Arnold, about to go tee off for the last time. And he leaned over and he pointed right here with great force. He says, you don't understand. Your father helped you make that decision. You were listening to him. He was right here the whole time. With that, Roy Saunders was caddying for him. His son-in-law came over and he said, Hey, bro, we got to go. And he said, I haven't hit a putt yet. Let me just drop these three. He dropped three balls down, 12 feet away, all three, center cut, bottom of the hole. And off he went to go play the Masters for one last time. And as he left, he looked at Roy, looked at me, and he said, you know, this was always my dream, was always to come here. My father's wish was passed on to me. I know it's time, but I never wanted it to end. We never wanted this to ever end, this friendship, this connection we had with Arnold Palmer. It's almost impossible to define how somebody that big could have so many friends. How did he manage that? It blows my mind how he was able to keep all of us somehow in the loop. What a special talent. What an enormous heart. And Jim Nance, who usually is so glib, he was struggling through this. He was reading. And he's not a guy who reads. And Nance closes with a round of applause, or asking the audience for a round of applause, one last round for Arnold Palmer. But I think here we are in Latrobe, and knowing how much he loved that showering of love and appreciation. Can we give him one more? Can we give him one more walk and ovation for Arnold Palmer coming home up the 18th? Would you join me? And you were watching grown men and women standing, and they were all just crying, but not crying sad tears, actually. Those beautiful ones you cry. At a life well lived. Again, one more reading from King Among Us from Sports Illustrated and Michael Baumgarter. Palmer played quickly. He drove the ball long and straight. 
and with his inimitable knock-kneed, wristy stroke, could run the table with his putter. He was not one to sit around and hyperanalyze swing positions with the meaning of life. Asked about life regrets, Palmer once said, Eh, I wish I would have tried putting left-handed low. That's about it. Arnold Palmer, his life remembered at his memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, our last segment when we come back. our American stories and we return to the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania Arnold Palmer's memorial service and we're dedicating the hour to this man and we're not golf people here we're not we just stumbled upon this well Alex is a golf person but he hasn't been golfing much because he's been working hard and well he's a new dad but it's just such a great story and here on our American stories that's what we do Up next was Peter Dawson, the former CEO of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club. And he talked about how Arnold Palmer, this American guy, brought Americans to the British Open. The RNA and the Open owe Arnold a very great debt. In those difficult post-war years prior to 1960, very few American golfers played in the championship. And in those 15 Opens, there were only two American winners. Arnold's success in the early 60s inspired many more of his countrymen to make the trip to to golf's oldest major. And in the following 15 Opens, American players won on nine occasions. The Open had been revitalized and was firmly back on the road to the great event it is today. Dawson went on to talk about Palmer as the golf ambassador and king. Yes, Arnold was golf's greatest ambassador, both at home and abroad. He mixed with heads of state, with presidents, with prime ministers, but he never lost his common touch. He could open doors which were firmly closed to others and spread interest in golf far and wide. But we all know he was more than an ambassador. He was the king, and always will be. Have there been better golfers? Well, perhaps, but only a very few. Has anyone done more for our game? No one has come even close. Has there been a finer human being? Well, I admit, I haven't met one yet. Arnold, we wish you Godspeed, and thank you from golfers the world over for all you have done. Yours was indeed a life well played. And then up next was his dear friend and arch rival, Jack Nicholas, who looks back and looked back 
at Palmer's love of flying. Mark McCormick managed Arnold and me, as well as our dear friend Gary Player. And because of that, we were put together in matches and big three exhibitions all over the world. We played together, we traveled together, we laughed a lot. Our wives became the absolute closest of friends, as did we. I've said a lot this week about Arnold's had two loves, golf and flying. And of course, Russ did a beautiful job cap capturing Arnold's passion for, for planes and flying. In some ways, Arnold approached his golf much like flying. He was passionate, loved to go fast, and he had a fearlessness about him. I remember a day in, in the 1960s, Arnold and I went out to Seagraves, Texas, a little town in West Texas, to play an exhibition. He had picked me up at his Aero Commander, and it was one of those windswept days in West Texas. And the Aero Commander were just bouncing all over, the, all over the sky. To me, I felt like a, you know, a piece of paper in a tornado, and I'm holding on for dear life, scared to death, it's like a roller coaster coming off the tracks. I looked over at Arnold, and he was laughing. And it was like he was sitting in the front seat of a roller coaster, enjoying every moment. I did not enjoy that flight. By the way, Nicholas had started this, and he was stumbling, and he had to read and excused himself for doing such. But he was just so nervous. And here's Nicholas going on to describe Palmer, and this was, I think, the highest tribute of them all, Jack Nicholas calling his dear friend, Arnold Palmer, the king of golf. I've said before, and I can't emphasize it enough today, I may have had to battle Arnold's army early on, but I never had to battle Arnold Palmer. Today, I'm a proud soldier in Arnie's army. You see, I've even got an umbrella on my lapel. He was the king of our sport, and he always will be. Like the great Vin Scully, when he called his last game Sunday night for the Dodgers, he says, don't be sad that it's over. Smile because it happened. Today I hurt just like you hurt. You don't lose a friend of almost 60 years and not feel an enormous loss. But my wife often says that memories are the cushions of life. <clears throat> Each of you sitting here today, or perhaps sitting at home, has at least one wonderful memory of Arnold Palmer to balance out your hurting heart. So for today, so today and many years from now, I simply ask, I simply ask you to just remember when. To his dear wife, Kit, his adored daughters, Peg and Amy, their families, Kit's, Kit, Kit's children, his friends, and his millions of fans, Remember when Arnold Palmer touched your life, touched your heart. And please, don't forget why. Thank you. I'm a proud soldier in Arnie's army. And the whole place was crying because they're watching Jack, Jack Nicholas hold back the tears. And there's nothing like watching a guy trying to hold back tears. A little bit more from that great Sports Illustrated piece before we then play the final, final tribute by Vince Gill. Arnold Palmer's legacy is vast. He was a part owner of Bay Hill Club and Lodge, where a PGA Tour event bearing his name is played every March. He was an owner of the Pebble Beach Golf Links. 
Arnold Palmer was amused and a little embarrassed by the ubiquity of the beverage that bears his name, a lemonade iced tea drink he is credited with inventing. Palmer had six grandchildren and nine great-grandchildren. Arnold Daniel Palmer, Arnie to most everyone, was a man of his generation. He insisted that men remove their hats upon entering the various clubhouses under his watch, and he was a big believer in the benefits of a firm handshake. He often said that the secret to the success of his as a pro golfer was the firm grip his father taught him as a child, just a few years after the great crash. He never changed his grip. He never changed his swing. He never changed anything. The New York Times columnist Dave Anderson once wrote that nobody could enjoy being who he is or she is more than Arnold Palmer enjoys being Arnold Palmer. That observation got to the heart of the man and the matter. Palmer lived a life full and got millions of others to believe they could do the same. And so we leave the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, with this from the singer and songwriter Vince Gill. I'm Vince. I'm the golfer none of you have ever heard of. Um, I just want to thank the family for the gift of uh, the invitation to come here and honor an old friend. That means more to me than you'll ever know. This, um, this man was... Uh, my favorite person, not my favorite golfer, but my favorite person that I ever met. This is Our American Stories, the life of Arnold Palmer, the memorial service at St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Let's take it out with Vince Gill. Wish I could see the angels' faces when they see your sweet, sweet swing. Mountain, the sun you were 
Habib and you're listening to the work of Guy Clark extraordinary songwriter from Texas who passed at 74 years of age songwriter poet, guitarist, husband, troubadour craftsman patron saint of an entire generation of bohemian pickers is how Robert K. Orman a great writer about writers in Songwriter Magazine wrote Revered by people like Emmy Lou Harris, Willie Nelson, John Prine, Lyle Lovett, Towns Van Zant, Chris Christopherson. You could just go on and on. All of whom viewed Clark's songwriting, which combined dark wit, romantic optimism, and weary skepticism as the highest form of the popular lyric. And you heard it right there, just in the beginning. And we're going to play you our favorite Guy Clark song in its entirety in just a minute. But Guy talked about songwriting to Songwriter Magazine, and we wanted to have you hear from him what he thought about this art form. I think the majority of my work is something that happened to me. I saw happen to someone else, or a friend of mine told me happened. You know, I mean, and there's a certain amount of theatrical and poetic license you have to allow yourself. You know, this. People are supposed to like it. That's why you're doing it. You know, it's supposed to be fun. It's not brain surgery. It's heart surgery. It's heart surgery. And by the way, Clark was born in Monahans, Texas, on November 1941, raised in his family's shotgun hotel where he learned about music and life from men like Jack Prigg, the well driller, who would later become the subject of one of Clark's most famous songs, Desperados Waiting on a Train. Clark family moved to Rockport, Texas, where Clark came of age before joining the Peace Corps as a young man. After the Corps, Clark eventually settled in Houston, where he would soon become a fixture in that city's growing songwriter community with folks like Towns Van Zant and Jerry Jeff Walker. Clark met his future wife, Suzanne Clark, with whom he'd stay married until her passing in 2012. They moved to Nashville in 71, 
and would live there the rest of their lives. And what's remarkable about Clark is, well, he wrote about life. Most of the really good songs are dead true, he told American songwriter. You couldn't make up Desperados waiting for a train or any of that stuff. It had to have happened to have the song be there. And so we wanted to play, well, just one perfect song by Guy Clark. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, and once this song starts, you cannot stop it, which is why we want to play it in his honor in its entirety right now. Passing by a pawn shop in an older part of town Something caught my eye and I stopped and turned around I stepped inside and there I spied in the middle of it all Was a beat up old guitar hanging on the wall What do you want for that piece of junk? I asked the old man He just smiled and took it down He put it in my hand said, you tell me what it's worth, you're the one who wants it, tune it up, play a song, and let's just see what haunts it. So I hit a couple of chords in my old country way of strumming, and then my fingers turned to lightning, man, I never heard it coming, it was like I always knew, I just don't know where I learned it. It wasn't nothing but the truth, so I just reared back and burned it. Up and down the neck, man, I never missed a lick. The guitar almost played itself, and there was nothing I could do. It was getting hard to tell just who was playing who. When I finally put it down, I couldn't catch my breath. My hands were shaking, and I was scared to death. The old man finally got up and said, where in the hell you been? I've been waiting all these years for you to stumble in. And then he took down an old dusty case and said, go on, pack it up. You don't owe me nothing. And then he said, good luck. There was something spooky in his voice and something strange on his face. And when he shut the lid, I saw my name was on the case. This is Lee Habib, the life of Guy Clark, died today. 
More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Dwayne and Greg Allman, the duo that founded, formed, and drove the Allman Brothers. And on this day, back in 1971, Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident. And so we wanted to cover a little bit of his life. And what a life it was. Rolling Stone in 2013 did a poll from all guitarists, all the greats, ranking the top 100 guitarists. This stunned me. Number one, Jimi Hendrix. Not a surprise. Number two, Dwayne Allman. So who is this guy? Born November 20th, 1946. And what a life. Nashville, Tennessee. The eldest son of Willis. His dad, a non-com officer, turned recruiting officer in the United States Army. While the family was living near Norfolk, his father was murdered by a shell-shocked vet. He and a friend met in a bar and had been given a ride to. In order to retrain as an accountant, his mom sent Dwayne and Greg off to military school. And, well, nobody really liked these boys. And the bond was formed between these brothers. And, well, Dwayne ended up being the older, older, almost father, role model, mentor. And he was a heck of a musician. Ultimately finds himself in this cool place playing for all kinds of great artists. A place called Muscle Shoals. A young, scraggly-haired, long-haired sort of hippie playing for people like Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett. In the movie and great documentary, Muscle Shoals, the younger brother, Greg, talks about his older brother, Dwayne. I talked him into going horseback riding with me because we weren't doing anything. Finally went out there and I said, listen, when we go from the barn out to the field, we got to cross a paved road. I said, the horse is shod. It's what? It's got shoes on, you know. And if he slips, he'll bust both of his butts. So don't give him any reins. And guess what happened? And he hit right here. He couldn't play. And he wouldn't let me in his house for about six weeks. And, I mean, that was, that was terrible because, I mean, 
you know, growing up without a father, he was somewhat of a father figure to me, even though he was only a year and 18 days older. So it came his birthday, November the 20th, and uh, I went out and bought the first Taj Mahal record and a bottle of Coracetin pills. He had his cold, and he had his arm in a sling, he was pissed off at the world, and I did what I could do. I put it down in front of his door, had it wrapped up and everything, and I knocked on the door and ran. So how did the band form? We have one more clip. And again, younger brother talking about his dear and departed older brother. My brother was a hell of a guy. He was uh, very intelligent. He did three things. He had his arm around a guitar, arm around a beautiful lady, or his head in a book. The only time we were apart is when he worked down in uh, Muscle Shoals. He played with Aretha and Wilson Pickett and Clarence Carter and uh, was just kicking mucho butt on the guitar. And uh, that's when the idea hit him, man, we got to put a band together. That's all there is to it. He called me on the phone. He said, man, I got these four guys. I got two drummers and I'm going, oh, train wreck. Two full sets of drums. He says, yeah, but you just, you got to hear it. You got to hear it. I said, God, I can almost hear it from here, yeah. <laughs> and he said, I got this, this guy named Betts, who's a killer lead guitar player. I said, well, what the hell do you do? You know, I mean, last I looked, you, you were pretty damn good yourself. And he said, oh, you'll, you'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll show you all that when you get here. I got there with 22 songs. God, I'll never forget that day. That was a long day. We all got in this room, and they said, okay, show us what you got, you know. <laughs> and uh, I started playing when they were going, oh, um, what's next, you know. <laughs> what else you got? And I'd play them another one, and okay, what else you got? <laughs> I'm starting to sweat peach seeds, you know. And uh, I hit them with dreams. Man, they all picked up their axes. We learned it right then and there. Still sounds the same today, and that—that that was it. And here is the original recording of the aforementioned dreams on the very first Allman Brothers album. At about the time that they're recording, a British boy who is a pretty well-renowned guitarist himself, Eric Clapton, well, he was hearing these sounds. He particularly heard he particularly heard Dwayne's work on Hey Jude. And so they got together and they collaborated. A little band was formed on the side named Derek and the Dominoes, and out popped this Eric Clapton classic.
Eric Clapton had said, I remember hearing Wilson Pickett's Hey Jude and just being astounded by the lead break at the end. And I had to know who that was who was playing immediately, right now. Clapton wrote later in his autobiography that he and Allman were inseparable during those sessions in Florida. And he talked about Allman as, quote, the musical brother, no, the brother I'd never had, but wished I'd had. Such an influence did this brother have on a new genre of music, which was called Southern Rock, a combination of blues and gospel and country, so much mixed together that when he passed, another pretty big band wrote this song as a tribute. Leonard Skinner. His nickname was Sky Dog. That's what he liked to be called. Everybody said he was most comfortable just holding his axe. In the end, when he passed, he had always told his younger brother that his favorite song of his was Melissa. But it didn't fit into the first two records. And when Eat a Peach came out, which was a tribute to the dead brother from the band and from all brothers in arms from that part of America... Well, here's the song that Dwayne Allman loved the most of Greg's, and here's Greg singing it with the Allman Brothers, without Dwayne but for him. This is Lee Habib on this day in history. Dwayne Allman died in a motorcycle accident. We'll be back right after this. Great train, each car looks the same. All the same. No one knows the gypsy's name. Good-hearted woman, 
Loving a good riding man Georgia Georgia No peace I find On the road again Just can't wait to get on the road again The life I love is making music with my friends And that was just a montage of some of the best of Willie Nelson. Seinfeld was born on this day in history. And so was one of our great singers. And I don't think anyone thinks that Willie had one of the greatest voices. But as we learned listening to Sinatra for the hour, uh, neither did he. And his favorite singer was Billie Holiday. And nobody thought Billie Holiday had, let's say, Sarah Vaughn's chops. But she had something else, and that's getting under the lyric. Sinatra had that. Willie, as we'll learn here, his favorite singer was Frank Sinatra. And that was Sinatra's real talent. And by the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Listen to that hour on Sinatra, because you hear from Sinatra himself on how he approached a song, the microphone, a lyric. He was an actor narrating a song, playing the part, getting under the skin of a song, and in the end, getting under our skins. And that's what Willie does. And he was born in 1933. Imagine that. He is still touring now. And he was born in 1933. And that's the thing about music. You don't get worse when you get older. It's the opposite of sports. You actually get better. And he was born in Abbott, Texas. He was born so close to midnight that some sources list Willie's birth date as April 30th. Willie explains why he thinks attitude has a lot to do with how long you live. I think attitude has a lot to do with how long you live. You know, the more stress you put on yourself, I think the quicker it shows up. I think the music has probably saved my life many times. Uh, Getting out on the show at night and doing a couple hours with a lot of positive energy going back and forth. I think it's, you know, I know it's been good for me. It's probably kept me alive. Willie describes growing up in Abbott, Texas and singing at different churches with his sister. 340 people, uh, population never changes. I grew up, my sister and I singing in the Methodist yeah. church, and we you know, branched out to the Baptist church and yeah, to the yeah, tabernacle right. and all around Abbott. At the time, I thought I was pretty successful. You know, I made $10 last night play, <laughs> playing with a Bohemian polka band. So. My sister, who reads music real well, she would play the piano, and I'd sit there on the stool when I could barely climb on the stool. Yeah. And play along with her as she was reading Stardust, Moonlight in Vermont, Georgia, all those great songs. So I grew up with those songs and learned them uh, because of her, really, and the radio. I listened to the radio all the time. And he didn't just listen. He was listening carefully to the architecture of these songs. Not as a singer, but as a writer, too. And during his remarkable career, still ongoing, 
Nelson has written more than 2,500 songs. That's just crazy. And he's released close to 300 albums, won multiple awards, including countless Grammys, AMAs, and CMAs. After dropping out of college, Nelson worked as a radio disc jockey for several years and played gigs in his spare time. He continued writing songs, producing some of his most famous works, including Nightlife, the Patsy Cline classic Crazy, and Funny How Time Slips Away in the late 1950s. Willie talks about starting off as a songwriter in Nashville for the first time. He makes Charlie Rose laugh when he says why he moved back to Texas after 10 years. When I got to Nashville, I found out that uh, it was a little easier to get in as a songwriter because I was with a publishing company called Pamper Music. I signed right. with them thanks to Ray Price, who oh, yeah. owned the company. Yeah. So I started out as a songwriter. First big hit that I had as a songwriter yeah. was uh, Crazy, Patsy Cline, Hello oh, Waltz, Roy Orbison did Pretty Paper, and Ray Price did Nightlife. Yeah. And those were some of the early ones. My house burned. And uh, yeah. I had been doing a lot of shows in Texas anyway, because that's where I, you know, yeah. I was most popular in Texas. I sort of worked down there all my life, and I knew all the club owners and all, yeah. <laughs> all the waitresses. So I said, let me go to Texas. <laughs> you know what they say about a guitar player? <laughs> Without a waitress, he's homeless. <laughs> Willie says there's another reason he wanted to go back home to Texas, too. I ran into a group of people down there who had real long hair and uh, wore sandals and smoked a lot of dope and loved country music. <laughs> you said, I'm home. <laughs> I'm back. And so, uh, and they, you know, they wore blue jeans and t-shirts and bandanas. And uh, I grew up in Abbott where yeah. I went, So it was real easy for me to go back. You know, Willie collaborated a lot with all kinds of different folks. And as we head into the break here, one of our favorites with Ray Charles is Seven Spanish Angels, and here's Willie introducing the song Sitting Next to Ray Charles, two men who are unlikely collaborators if you would have talked to any A&R guy or almost any music person. This legendary blues player and this legendary soul musician and this old country guy. But take a listen. Yo, uh, let's do Seven Spanish Angels. This is a song that uh, uh, Ray Charles brought down to the studio a few weeks ago and uh, let me sing with him on it and it's going to be a phonograph record pretty soon right you're right and we'd like to do it for you oh he looked down into her brown eyes and said, say a prayer for me She threw her arms around him Whispered, God will keep us free They could hear the riders coming He said, this is my last fight If they take me back to Texas They won't take me back alive there were seven Spanish angels at the altar of the sun. They were praying for a lover in the valley of the gun. When the battle stopped and the smoke cleared, there was thunder from the throne. And seven Spanish 
vanished angels took another angel home. And she reached down and picked the gun up that lay smoking in his hand. She said, Father, please forgive me. I can't make it without my man. And she knew the gun was empty. And she knew she could not win. But her final prayer was answered when the rifles fired again. When we come back, more The Life of Willie Nelson, born this day in history. This is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. You're listening to Willie Nelson singing The Maker. And that's at Daniel Lenoir's studio. Lenoir, he made you two who they were. And ultimately, there was nobody that Willie didn't want to record with and see what he sounded like with. And in the background, you hear one of his dear friends, one of the great vocalists in country music or any music, Emmylou Harris. Teatro is the record. Pick it up. You cannot put it down. It's so good. And we pick up along this story a concept album, Red-Headed Stranger, which is about a fugitive on the run from the law after killing his wife and her lover. Here's Willie talking about how, after he was supposedly given creative control, he was told that the album just wasn't good enough. Red-Headed Stranger, uh, after I made a deal with uh, CBS for a new album, and uh, one of the the things that, that they gave me was 
artistic control. And when I turned in the Red Headed Stranger album, which had about four pieces on it. <laughs> a guitar and a harmonica. A guitar and a harmonica and a piano. And that was yeah. about all we had. And uh, so they didn't know that, whether that was a serious thing to think about or not. Mm. And they thought maybe it was sounding more like a demo. Yeah. So I had to kind of argue with <laughs> them a little no, bit. This is it. <laughs> and Waylon, uh, who was there with yeah, me when right. I was presenting it to the people there at CBS, uh, was trying to tell them, hey, this is a hit. Don't and the title of the album would become a lasting nickname for Willie. It was ranked 183 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And number one on CMT's 40 greatest albums in country music. So much for the labels always knowing what they're doing. Around this time, Nelson contributed to the compilation Wanted, The Outlaws, which also featured Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter. Nelson and Jennings also collaborated on the popular song Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Cowboys, which won the 1978 Grammy Award for Best Country Vocal Performance by a duo or group. Here's Willie on why the group wanted to be called the Outlaws. It meant that we finally decided that we didn't want to go in and record the way they wanted us <laughs> to record. Exactly. <laughs> we wanted to take our band and go in and play and then go to Dallas and play with the same band. Yeah, we think we know what we're doing, yeah. folks. <laughs> we're musicians. We got it figured out. They'll just record it and sell it. Record it and sell it. And around this time, Nelson also branched out into acting. He first appeared in The Electric Horseman, and that starred Robert Redford, a terrific film. Soon after... Nelson starred in Honeysuckle Rose, in which he played a veteran country musician performer. The film featured the song On the Road Again, which earned Nelson an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song. Now considered a trademark Nelson tune, On the Road Again also won the Grammy Award for Best Country Song in 1980. I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Going places that I've never been Seeing things that I may never see again I can't wait to get on the road again On the road again Willie talked about two of his biggest influences And he had many you heard him singing with one, Ray Charles, and you heard me talking about the other, Frank Sinatra. Let's take a listen. Ray Charles, and of course Hank Williams. Ray Charles is no more soulful person ever than he was. Yeah. Frank Sinatra, not a better singer, but also yeah. a, a good uh, chooser of material. And yeah. uh, he, you know, he recorded some of the finest songs in the world. And Willie would do that, too. He chose great material. He wrote, but he never thought his songs were the only songs he should sing. Something, by the way, that many more singer-songwriters should think about. You don't have to just play your stuff. It's okay. Really. Willie tells a story about playing chess with his good friend Ray Charles, who was blind for the vo- those of you who just might not know that. Good buddy. Hung out. Played chess together. Is that right? He kicked my ass. Did he really? Yeah. Cause he had- How did he play? Well, he felt the pieces, yeah. and uh, when we played, uh, he said, you want to play chess? And I kind of laughed. I said, sure. <laughs> so <laughs> and then we went, went to his hotel room, and we walked yeah. into the front room, and it had some lights in there, but we went into the other room, into the bedroom, where he had the chess set set up. There was not a light in there. So I sat down in a dark room to play chess, and then he brought out the chess set, which 
all the pieces were the same color. Yeah. And uh, he'd had it made especially for him, naturally. And he could pick up a king and feel and say, that's a ping or that's a pawn. But mm. it took me a little while to figure it out. And uh, naturally, he beat me pretty good. That's extraordinary. I mean, I think he's just indulging Charles when he says, yeah, okay, we'll play chess. Mm. You know, we love the way Willie covers other people's material. And I want to take you to a song he recorded. It's a Coldplay song. And you would think, Willie Martin, Willie, Willie Nelson, Chris Martin. This is not a likely scenario. But listen to his take on The Scientist. Take me back to the start. And that's what Willie could do. He could just slay you. I finally understand what that song is about. It's exactly right. <laughs> and it's beautiful. And it's my wife's favorite song. And it's a man just begging for mercy. And Willie gets at that. And Chris, who wrote the song, you know, have no idea. You have no idea. Mm-hmm. And Chris Martin has a lot to learn about singing from Willie Nelson. I'm sure when he heard this song, he just went, oh, I can never sing it again. <laughs> and yet Chris Martin probably has a much better voice, much better octave range, all that stuff. But Willie just breaks your heart. He breaks your heart. And he always did, and he always will. He's a man, he's a human being, and he exposes himself, shows his vulnerabilities. We learned that with Sinatra. He loved to sing songs about what? Losers, remember? This is the part of that set where I want to sing to all the losers out there. I've been there with you. And he has, and he's writing about his pain in the end and his loneliness. And so we'll leave and close out things with the song, ultimately, that was Willie's greatest. And Patsy Cline recorded it. And you would think, my goodness, how can you even dare to sing a song that Patsy Cline sings? But yet... Willie had his own way always of approaching a song, even his own. And so on this day in history, we celebrate the lives of two very different men, Jerry Seinfeld, Willie Nelson, both still with us, both plying their craft. They'll never stop. They can't. And I can't imagine Seinfeld ever stopping doing something creative. He'll never do. His life is never about nothing. Maybe the show was, but his life isn't. 
And Willie, my goodness, the guy was born to be on the road. As we close out, let's listen to him singing his own best song, Crazy. Crazy Crazy for feeling so lonely I'm crazy Crazy for feeling so blue I knew You'd love me as long as you wanted And then someday You'd leave me for somebody new Worry Why do I let myself worry Wondering What in the world did I do Crazy Crazy 